As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to episode 612 with my guest, Eric Zimmer. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all, all the bullshit. <laughs> Every last ounce of it. The bullshit in our head, well, also the bullshit outside our heads. But um, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm a jackass. I'm a jackass with a microphone. Is there any worse combination than that? Probably. I can't think of any right now. Uh, the website for our show is metalpod.com and metalpod, also the social media handles. You can follow us at... I got uh, an email from listener Rebecca, who's also a monthly donor. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And she writes, um, in, in regard to the uh, best of episode I reran with Randy Olea, uh, she writes, uh, I love his episode, but something was said by him that needs correcting, and I hope you will educate your listeners. He mentions, uh, quote, patient zero, unquote, um, the flight attendant that brought uh, actually, all of this is a quote. Quote, patient zero, the flight attendant that brought HIV to the U.S., unquote. Uh, she writes, this is not true and unfortunately has been repeated so often that it still persists. Gaetan Dugas was a flight attendant and he was loved by many, but he is not patient zero. The zero comes from the notes written by the researchers using the letter zero, uh, the letter O, meaning outside of Southern California. And then she lists uh, a link to a New York Times article uh, clearing that uh, that myth up. Thank you for weighing in on that, uh, Rebecca. I appreciate it. I'm always open to any any kind of input you guys have that is uh, constructive. You know what? Even non-constructive. Even shit where you attack the very core of my character. I kind of like that. This is from the fear survey filled out by a guy who calls himself lost in the woods. And he writes, I fear going to prison. I am a tax evader and have made my bet, but I'm very afraid of being raped and beaten up. Thank you for sharing that, man. I, I hope you can find a way to clear that up uh, where, where you don't go to, uh, to jail. Um, fuck, that's heavy, man. That is heavy. I do. I have heard stories of people uh, contacting the IRS and the IRS working with them uh, to slowly pay it back. I, I can't speak as to, uh, um, I've never had 
any experience with that, mostly because I'm a wanted fugitive and I broadcast from Europe. But um, no, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make light of your situation. Well then, Paul, why did you make light? I'm not making fun of him. I'm making fun of us. Okay, keep telling yourself that. We are swirling down the drain at what? The three minute and 15 second mark. This is from the fears survey filled out by a woman who calls herself No Name Thursday. And she writes um, to the question, share something you fear. Lately, the passage of time, watching my kids get older and pass milestones, knowing that time marches on no matter what, knowing things will never be just like this again. They might be better, they might be worse, but we have no choice in the matter uh, of the days, hours, and minutes ticking by. I'm afraid I'll remember too little that I won't appreciate enough. I know I'll look back on this time with such longing someday, despite the stress I'm under some days. I'm afraid of my own body as it ages, the aches and pains that get more pronounced each year, recognizing less and less of myself as I start to look like a middle-aged woman, even though I still feel 25 inside. Boy, that is such a deeply, deeply relatable fear. That, that feeling of time just slipping through our hands. And why is it <laughs> that we can only semi-appreciate it as we look back at it rather than in the future, uh, in the present moment? It's so backwards, but uh, I guess that's the way our, our brains cope with, with shit. And also, you know, uh, that last thing you said, uh, even though I still feel 25 inside, I watched a documentary on uh, Ron Wood. Uh, he's the one of the guitarists for the Rolling Stones, and he's 75, or at least he was when the documentary was, was shot. And he said, I, I do not think of myself as 75. I still think of myself as being in my 30s. And it's so weird to be 75 and to not feel on my insides like I'm 75. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Sophia. Some of the things you tell yourself about yourself, she writes, I'm crazy, manic, hard to love. Thank you for that, Sophia. I hope, uh, I hope your mania is treatable or manageable. That's the thing that's so fucked about mania, man, is sometimes it feels so good. It feels like what you have been waiting. It feels like the greatest Christmas present that you've ever gotten. And everybody around you is saying, return it, return it. It's terrible. Uh, this is also from the Voice in Your Head survey. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Depression Puzzle Missing Pieces. Uh, some of the things you tell yourself about yourself. I have a constant battle between two voices. One tells me I am stupid, ugly, unworthy, unlovable, immature, etc. The other battled, battles those comments, saying I'm intelligent, self-sufficient, worthy of all the love in the world. It's so exhausting when both pull so hard for my brain to pick a side. Wow, that is good. I wonder... You know, you did that. That's essentially a war in your brain that you just described. And it got me thinking how much the war in our bra brains 
feeds the outer war, literal war, going on in the world. You know, you think about the personalities of uh, and egos of people. Maybe they don't even have a a counterpoint to the mean voice in their brain. They they I don't know if you've ever seen the uh like I'm talking to there's just one person in particular. Uh the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam, but it plays a tape recording of three present presidents in a row, uh, Kennedy, uh, Lyndon Johnson, and Nixon, all on tape being recorded saying, I know we can't win Vietnam, but I have to think about the upcoming election. What kind of a person sends people to their needless death so they can get reelected? I mean, that do those people have a war going on in their brain? Or are they just so purely narcissistic that they don't give a shit? I don't know. But you got me thinking. Your survey got me thinking, so thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, under the cuckoo's nest. Oh, you go under it. You are a maverick. A lot of people over the cuckoo's nest, but you, no. You probably use ways. Uh, she asks, you frequently talk about your support groups, and I'm curious if they're 12-step groups or other types of groups. Um, yet there is, I debated on whether or not to say this, but yes, they are 12-step groups. One of the traditions uh, in specific groups is anonymity in the media. And um, so that's why I never name the specific group because I don't want to um, portray myself as somehow a spokesperson for them. So the, I'm, uh, the, the most that I feel comfortable saying is that, uh, I'm a fan of, of 12 step groups and, and those are the ones that I go to. And even saying that I, I worry that, um, I'm being a dick to, uh, the other people that belong to 12 step groups. But there you have it. Um, oh, this is a tough question. Uh, Lost in the Woods. Uh, we read one of his previous surveys. Is there ever a point where one should kill oneself? And I debated whether or not to even read that because I, do, I don't have an answer to that. I can't put myself, you know, 100% in somebody else's shoes. But the first thing that the thought that occurred to me is... What many people say is suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I think the only caveat for that would be somebody who is terminally ill and in tremendous amounts of pain. Um, that's that's my answer. But God, I feel nervous even reading that and even saying it. But one of the reasons I started this podcast is to talk about the stuff that's difficult to talk about Um Especially the stuff that I feel like just as confused as the person I'm, I'm interviewing or somebody writing in. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Nico Panchan. And she writes, The other night one of my cats cuddled up under the blanket between my husband and me. At some point she stretched her four legs and her... I like how you say four legs... 
because most of us, and, and that's correct. But for some reason, I will always see my, my dog stretched her arms. It's like, what? What? What are you talking about? She stretched her four legs and her soft paws landed in my face, one on my forehead, the other right on my eye. She was so gentle, no claws, not a single scratch. I rubbed my face against her paws and fell asleep with the soft, warm uh, against my skin. I wonder if there's a word missing there. Fell asleep with the soft, oh, the soft warmth against my skin. Um, That's really beautiful. This one, uh, she lists a second happy moment. And I'm going to read this as uncomfortable as it is to read because it feels like I'm blowing smoke up my own ass. But um, she writes, the ending of the recent episode with Katie Morton took me by pleasant surprise. You talked about fall melancholy with the sound of gentle guitar music in the background. Listening to it, I could feel it. And there was a positive, relaxing shiver down my spine. It was so soothing and made me feel so calm and happy. Please do more of this. I could listen all day. That means a lot. That means a lot to me. Um, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, uh, filled out by Patrick, and he, he writes, um, back in the good old days, I downloaded the little guitar podcast jingle you made. Uh, my ringtone is gone, though, uh, because I changed phones. Where can I download it again? I I believe it's... It's not on the website anymore, but if you email me through the website, I can uh, send you an MP3 of it, and um, you can make a ringtone from from that. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, this month, BetterHelp is uh, focusing on bringing attention to problem solving, finding solutions, and for me, that's a big part of uh, not only my support groups, but especially therapy and the relationship that I have with my therapist, Heidi. Um, she is a really important voice in me helping get a healthy perspective on my actual life and how I feel about my life because <laughs> those are two, getting those two things to match up is really, really hard if you're like me. Um, so if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great app. Uh, <laughs> let's try that again. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. See, right now what I'm doing, I'm employing the tool she gave me to allow myself to make mistakes. How do you like that? It's convenient, accessible, affordable. I read that wrong. And, and actually, she tells me that if it's two mistakes in a row, you're a worthless human being. Uh, it's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists anytime. So when you want to become a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Uh, you guys know how much uh, my dog Gracie means to me. Now, imagine this. Imagine that you have a Gracie in your life and you're at the vet's office and uh, all of a sudden you get a bill 
for a couple of grand. Well, if you had pet insurance, your pet could be covered for accidents or illnesses. And that's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. And then finally, this is from the Love Survey filled out by Dorothy. And she writes, I love feeding my dog Melissa crunchy food so I can hear her crunch on it. I love discovering who I am in my 30s, learning I'm not a scared 15-year-old anymore and that I am, in fact, a badass 33-year-old woman who can fully care for herself. It's a thing of deep, warm joy, just like what I gave your mom last night. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I'm here with Eric Zimmer, who is the host of the great podcast, The One You Feed, um, Practical Wisdom for a Better Life. And uh, your your podcast is listed in uh, religion and spirituality, but it's about much, much more than than that yeah it is much more than that it, it it seems to bounce around in categories but yeah it's about um how we live better lives you yeah. know how do how do we uh take the things that we hear out there in the world and how do we apply them to our lives so that yeah. we live happier more fulfilled more meaningful lives uh, Eric and I have been meaning to do this for, what, 10 years? Well, we had you on our show a long time a ago. A long time ago. Yeah. I was a child. <laughs> yes, yes, you were. Um, and um, it was a very interesting episode because uh, we talked a lot about you were you were very upset about your Lego set. 
your, your pornographic Lego set. <laughs> um, you've had some really fascinating guests on your on your podcast. Um, the most common topics that you touch on are mindfulness. Um, you talk about depression yep. and anxiety. Yep. Uh, and you talk about practical ways to improve your life. Um, I really like that that you take something as nebulous as spirituality, which it, it's so so rarely it seems is it talked about in a way of where does the rubber meet the road. Yep. With spirituality, um, I think for a lot of people who were ri- raised uh, in organized religion, it's about dressing up and worshiping, and then once you leave the church, you know, not much practical advice yep. on well, how do you make your life better? How do you find peace? So let's talk about your story first. You know, yep. when you were twenty-four years old. You were addicted to heroin. You were homeless. Sounds like that might have been the bottom of uh, uh, before you kind of turned your life around. Yeah, that was the sort of last bottom. You know, as we as we know, we can we can hit a bunch of them and bounce off. That was the one um, that got me sober for. Um, about eight years. Then I actually went out and drank again after about eight years. And then I've been back sober 15 years. That's awesome. But yeah, yeah, 24. I had a, you know, a fairly low bottom. As you said, I was homeless. Uh, I was heroin addict. I was looking at going to jail for a long time. I weighed 100 pounds. I had hepatitis C. I mean, I was, I was in bad shape. And what were the bad parts? Well, (laughs) I looked great. I really did. I really, you know, my Nice and sucked no, out. No, no, I didn't look great. Obviously, I mean that's uh, it was bad shape. Yeah, let's back up before we get to that. Uh, kind of describe. Uh, give me some snapshots from childhood, just to kind of paint a picture of what it was like leading up to that. Does addiction run in your family? Not directly, although my dad's brother seemed to have some of it. Um, but there wasn't much of it around that we saw or talked about. I mean, I grew up in an upper middle class house where I had parents who were mostly there, mm-hmm. um, who mostly took care of us. Um, you know, but I was a highly sensitive child, I think. Mm-hmm. And I just think there were ways that I probably needed to be parented that weren't there. My mom was very depressed. My father was depressed, although it showed up as anger. You know, I found out some things about my mom's life that had happened right before I was born that I never knew about until like a year or two ago. So I get more sense into, you know, what it was like. So it was the sort of childhood that was not um, terrible, but certainly not great. Although I remember so very little of it. I have almost no memories, which certain therapists tell me is a bad sign. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm not a therapist, but I know that. Now, I don't yes. remember last year either, and so, you know, right. I just I have a I have a very bad memory. But um yeah, I was in trouble from you know, as early as I can remember, you know, by the time I was like 10 years old, I was a chronic shoplifter. I had taught my 6-year-old brother how to steal. I just was always 
in trouble, I think because it made me feel alive, you know? It, I think I probably, if I had to venture a theory, is that I had worked so hard to repress my emotions because they simply were not mm-hmm. safe or allowed that even then, stealing was the only thing that made me, you know, getting that, that adrenaline rush was the only thing that made me feel kind of alive. People that, that don't deal with uh, addiction, I think a, a lot of times they misunderstand whether it's shoplifting or something else. They, they're kind of baffled by, well, you know it's wrong. You know it's making your life worse. Why don't you stop? And I've quoted him a thousand times on the podcast, but, you know, Andrew Solomon uh, said the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's vitality. And you talked about that feeling of of wanting to feel alive. And sometimes I, I trying to describe it to somebody who's never battled an addiction is it's as if you are dying of thirst in a desert and this act or drug is a bottle of water. Yeah. Yeah, it's the the you know, why would you not take something that was the first time you felt normal or good or excited know, about life. Yeah. Yeah. And I th- I often think about we we can paint addiction as something as an escape. You know, you're mm-hmm. trying to escape painful memories is often a thought. That really wasn't what it was for me. It was that was what made the world come alive. I think of the, I think it was the movie Days of Wine and Roses where one of the characters is describing and he says, the, you know, the world is, is black and white to me. And then I drink and all the colors come on. Couldn't agree more. You know, could not agree more. So when did drugs enter the picture for you and how did you progress to heroin? Well, I started maybe around 15, and I drank and used very strangely from the very beginning. Um, I got drunk on mouthwash the first time. Um, Someone said you could get drunk if you drank mouthwash, and so I did. And I very quickly was learned like, well, if you're going to do that, you want to drink a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. And I was getting like church, you know, church groups drunk on mouthwash, and so very strange, but. Not often or frequent, but just strange use. Uh, waking up the night after drinking and you know, being seen like a half a bottle of vodka left, and being like, "Well, why not?" Uh, but then i i found uh, I founded a tutoring program for uh, disadvantaged children, and I saw what drugs and alcohol were doing in their lives, and so I swore I just said, "I'm not doing this anymore." So my last couple years of high school, I just didn't touch the stuff. But then when I was 18. Uh, I went away and I came home and my girlfriend was dating my best friend and I had I just <laughs> simply couldn't cope with that. And someone said, do you want to drink? And I said, sure. And I didn't draw a whole lot of sober breaths between then and 24, probably. Uh, you you described those uh, two years in high school when you weren't using. Describe what you can remember feeling without that. Well, what's interesting is I learned a lesson then that that I later learned in recovery. And it became clear to me why those two years worked is because my entire life was focused on this tutoring program and growing it and these kids. And so what I learned then was I was relatively content when I was living my life in service of something bigger. And then, um, 
you know, then alcohol came and just took all that away. But when I got sober, I, it's the same lesson we get in, in recovery, right? Mm -hmm. That, that helping others is, is key. And so, you know, those two years were, were pretty good years, but they were pretty good years because I was engaged in something that was very meaningful Mm -hmm. to me. How did you become a tutor when you were still in high school? So I wanted, I, I don't know, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I went to a soup kitchen and I was serving food and I saw all the children and I was just talking to some of them and realized that for a lot of these kids, they had never done something as simple as go to the zoo. And I just thought, I'd like to take these kids to the zoo. Well, as I learned very quickly, nobody was about to turn a bunch of uh, elementary school kids over to a high schooler to take them to the zoo. Like, it just wasn't going to happen. So the tutoring program became the, the, the means by which I was able to do something with these kids. And um, I just was, you know, we were an upper middle class high school. So most of us were pretty, you know, we were getting a pretty good education. We were tutoring first and second graders, mm-hmm. you know, in a volunteer way. And I think, I mean, we weren't qualified, but we, we were qualified to know, like, what, you know, uh, five plus seven was. You know, we it, we at least had that, and and I think it was just an opportunity to show up, and and you know the goal was still to try and show these kids there was something besides the little world they lived in. Mm-hmm. And describe if if you can remember one of the first times you experienced, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but you experienced something that in a way um, eased that longing for. Uh, black and white to turn to color. Do you mean from uh, in a from healthy way or a non-healthy way? Uh, a healthy way. <laughs> um, During those two years. Yeah, I mean... If you did experience that. I did, I, but I don't know that I have any specific moment that I can mm-hmm. pull out. Like, that was the moment where I, I noticed it. I just noticed that I went from being... It was like the tale of two high schools. My first two years of high school, I was... Um, always drop. I mean, I, I never went to school. It was a constant cat and mouse game between me and the guidance counselor. And at the end of the second year, he said, look, we're not going to do this again. At the end of my sophomore year, he said, I can expel you now, or you can try this little alternative program we have down the street. And I thought, well, okay, I guess I'll go to the alternative program. I didn't want to, but when I got there, um, it was just, it was the right place for me. And there was something about there were teachers that showed interest in me and I wasn't bored. And, um, and so it kind of came out of that. So it was a really, it was a really positive period for me. Um, I don't think I would have gotten out of high school otherwise. Would it be fair to say that you discovered a, a sense of meaning and purpose? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that tutoring program absolutely gave me a sense of meaning and purpose. Talk about that, that more, the, the importance of, of meaning and purpose and um, how that affects us emotionally, mentally, and even physically. I think meaning and purpose is, it's really important, but it's very difficult to describe for me why it's so important. Um, And it's very difficult to understand what it is that gives us meaning and purpose, you know, because the thing about depression that's so challenging for me is something that seems meaningful one day can seem completely non-meaningful the next day. 
Talk about that. Is there an example of something that you can think of? Anything and everything. Like some days I could be doing the podcast and I could be thinking about, you know, get get emails from people about how much it helps them and the connection. And the next day I can wake up and be like, yeah, so what? You know, okay, so what? Like, yeah, but if I wasn't here, they'd get someone else would help them, right? Like what? And so that's the that's the that's the depression angle. And so for me, it's just a matter of knowing that's the depression talking and mm-hmm. saying, okay, let me still act the way that I know my non-depressed self would act to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on how bad our depression is, we may have more or less ability to do that. But that's always sort of a north star for me is like, well, what do I what actions would I take if I was not depressed? It's sort of the acceptance and commitment therapy sort of approach which is you're going to feel what you're going to feel, but try and act according to your values. Uh, there's a, a saying in recovery, fake it till you make it. And uh, I think that would probably apply to it. And they, they don't mean be phony. They just mean move your, move your feet, take yep. some type of action. Yep. And it might uh, help get you out of your funk. It might not, but at the very least, you're also maybe making the world a tiny bit better. Yeah, there's another phrase from recovery that may be the thing I've said on the show most often, which is sometimes you can't think your way into right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. Yeah, I love and, that. And that's always been so meaningful to me is just, okay, I, I can't can't do anything about what I'm feeling right now, but I can do something about my actions. Again, this is not to say like, if you're struggling to do that, that you're you're failing because there are days that it's really oh, yeah. difficult to do that. But it's a general an approach I, I take and try to take. So let's let's uh, fast forward to when you were 24. Uh, describe what it was like being homeless, being hooked on heroin. Well, as you said, it was wonderful. It was really, it was 90. It was freeing. <laughs> it was very, it was, yeah, not 90% good. No, um, it was, it was miserable. I mean, it really was miserable. Are there any snapshots from it that kind of stick with you or was it just a blur of? I, yeah, I mean, there, there's a number of them, uh, you know, calling my drug dealer who was not somebody that you would generally admire right and just being obsequious to this guy you know like just yes sir i mean anything because he had the the key you know just having to be like yeah man i'll get there but put my pants on you know and it's just just the you know there was that level of subservience um i remember thinking you know, when my friends would, my friends were pulling away from me, and I remember thinking, they're just jealous of how free I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I what what sort of kicked off that last bottom was I was working uh, in a restaurant and worked there since I was 13 years old, and got arrested in front of everybody I worked with, all the customers. You know, police walked in and hauled me out in handcuffs. Wow. And who covered your shift? <laughs> Restaurant shut down shortly after. They couldn't. They couldn't do without me. Um, 
describe what it was like, and God, I hope I'm not glorifying this, but the first time you used heroin. Yeah, I I hesitate to I, I hesitate to describe it because it's hard to you know, it it could sound like glorifying it. I mean, I've your show is crass enough that I can feel free to say this, but mm. I've described it as like God coming down and giving me a blowjob. Yeah. I mean it was it was what I had been looking for. Right. You know. And and the reason I asked that is I think it's important to detail what draws us into our mistakes, that draws us into the dark side. Um, because for people out there, I guess what I want is is for people to have compassion for the person that can't get off a of heroin. And, and by that, I don't mean to enable them, but to not look at them at like, you know, oh, God, you fucking eyesore. Get your shit together. What's the matter yeah. with with you? Yeah. Well, addiction is so pernicious, right? Because by that point in my addiction, I was firmly trapped in the cycle of I hate myself. I feel terrible about the person I am. I feel terrible about the things that I'm doing so badly that all I can do is get high, which then makes me feel worse about who I am. And the, and the, the cycle, cycle descends cycle. downwards, not to mention, you know, the chemical changes that we know are happening with addiction. And it, it really is a, it is a, it is a pernicious thing because you start off, you know, we could argue, I'm interested. Let me try that again. I'm interviewing uh, Gabor Mate soon, who's written a lot oh, dude, about this so stuff. Awesome. And I'm, so I've been reading his latest book and, and I was struck by the idea he says about like, how much choice does an addict really have at the end? But he makes the point, how much choice do they even have at the beginning? Because we know that, you know, adverse childhood experience, trauma, depression, all these things make Genetics. us way more likely. Yep. Yep. But by the end, the degree of choice I have today about my addiction is radically different than the degree of choice I had sitting there at that time. It's night and day. You know? How so? Well, today I feel like I have a like. If I were to go, if I were to leave here and go get high, I feel like I would have made a fairly conscious choice to do that gotcha. because I am not in the level of pain that I was. I have tools and skills and resources and all kinds of things that I did not have then. Not to mention at that you know if we go to you know near the end of addiction, what was going on chemically in my mm -hmm. brain. You know, we know one of the things about drugs in general, you use them long enough, they start to shut down the very parts of the brain that are capable of making the decision not to use drugs yeah. or alcohol. Yeah. Right. So you've got you've got this not only the, the, the emotional cycle I just described, you've got the chemical cycle, which is saying, you know, the, your prefrontal cortex, the part, your executive function is is being shut down by yes. drugs and alcohol. So yeah. it. I mean, it's really hard. I'm so, I stay sober a lot of times on the fact like I don't ever want to have to do it. Again. I don't ever want to have to get sober mm -hmm. again. I know I would have to if I went back out mm -hmm. and I don't ever want to go through it again. Yeah. I think w when we look at somebody who's being abusive or they're abusing themselves with drugs, uh, you know, the thing that often pops into my mind is 
not a moral judgment on them, but the thought that they're in survival mode and that they, yeah. they lack tools. And yeah. um, the metaphor that kind of came into my brain, or I should say the analogy when you were describing that was when we are getting high day to day and that part of our brain is shut down, it's like we're treading water in the middle of an ocean, but now you got some breathing room and you're on land yep. and it would take something for you to go, ah, the ocean looks pretty, pretty tempting. Yeah. I, I certainly don't want to in any way make it sound like I'm beyond that because of course I don't think I am, but it's just, I feel like I make a choice. I tell this story, um, I've told it a couple times uh, recently, but because I think it speaks to how much we can actually change. My mother fell a couple years ago, broke a couple bones in her back and hip, you know, not not good. And I was her primary caregiver and she was on narcotics. And I would go to the pharmacy and I would pick up her Oxycontin. What's amazing is that not only did I not want to use it, I didn't even think about it for, um, I was about a month in, I went, you know, I have been carrying around something that I would have robbed you at gunpoint for, you know, then. Mm-hmm. And I'm carrying it around and I'm not even thinking about it. I mean, that is a remarkable, you know, that's the promise of recovery that we can get that kind of freedom. Now, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, it's 25 years ago. I mean, so it's not like right around the corner. But I just was really, it was a, it was a really nice moment for me mm-hmm. just to be like, wow, okay. That thing that I thought, maybe I could get sober, maybe, 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 but oh, it'll be torture forever. Yes, yes. And it wasn't. It's not. And, and that, is, when I experienced that, I remember sitting in my recliner, I've been sober about three months, and I had no desire to get high or to get drunk. And that is the moment that I came to believe that there was something in the universe. I didn't understand where it came from, what it looked like, how it worked. I just knew I felt the presence of something that had lifted that darkness from me. And that made it easier for me to want to continue to do the things that I was doing that were helping me. And I realized that there is a momentum a downward momentum to addiction and there is an upward momentum yes. to spirituality, meaning, purpose, whatever you you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah, there is definitely I described a really bad downward spiral earlier, but yeah, there are upward spirals, you know. You uh, a a common one people might relate to is you you exercise in the morning and all of a sudden you feel like eating healthy at lunch. Mm-hmm. So you eat healthy at lunch. I mean, so, you know, it's not like you constantly spiral up, 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 right? That's not life. But it's a long way from where I sat all those years Mm -hmm. ago to where I sit today. Well, let's talk about practical stuff. You know, one of the things, you're also a behavior coach. And I imagine one of the things that you uh, talk about with your clients are habits, for improving your life? What are some of the ones that you uh, share with your clients and and ones that personally work for you? Well, I think we could talk about like what habits support me, or we could talk about the science of building habits. I'm not sure. Let's talk about both. Well, the habits that support me, and I've heard you talk about this, but 
you know, the number one thing that supports my overall well-being, I think, is exercise. As boring as that is, you know, I want something more. <laughs> I want to be able to prescribe something better than, you know, exercise. But it is, it is hugely important to me. Um, some time spent in quiet meditation, you know, pretty regularly. Um, Sharing with others how I'm doing. I mean, these are very. I mean, you, you're, you, and your guests talk have talked about them countless times. It's. I think we we listen to things a lot, hoping somebody's going to give us some secret that we haven't heard before. But the secrets are fairly basic, um, and they involve footwork. They involve footwork. Yeah, they they do physical um, physical actions. Almost all of them. Picking up a phone, going for yeah. a walk. Um, going and helping somebody else. Yep. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, little taglines, I don't know who said it where or where it comes from, but it's depression hates a moving target. Oh, wow. That's so great. And so that really helps me is just like, okay, I feel it coming on and it's everything in me says don't move at all. I just go, okay, anything. Because it's so oddly comforting. In that yeah. moment, it, it's it's almost as, as if the picturing of some type of stimulation that isn't compulsive or addictive feels like jumping into an ice cold pool. Yeah, I heard you say on a recent podcast, uh, you were talking about, you know, the journaling. And sometimes it feels like somebody asked you like, hey, could you come get these 500 pound weights and carry them across town? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it, that that is it. And so, you know, one of the things that that I work on is with people is how can we how can we get over that that hump because that's often all it is is it's mm-hmm. it's to get moving you know and and it's again not a real big secret it's how do you deconstruct that thing into the smallest possible step so i've got a peloton bike at home and that's my main way that i work out these days and you know i won't want to, i'll be sitting there on the couch and be like i don't want to ride I don't want to do it. Moment, you know, I'm on the couch. I'm comfortable. I feel heavy. I feel sluggish. I don't want to do it. Knowing like, well, but it's the right thing for me to do. So I think that's the first step is just getting that clarity. Like that really is probably the best thing for me. Um, and so I'll be like, just go put on your bike shorts. That's all you got to do. Just go do that. And so I'll go put on my bike shorts. But okay, just go now put on your bike shoes. Have you ever put your bike shorts on and then then not gotten on the bike? No. Mm-mm. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. Right. I would still – and that's the key is you got to kind of give yourself permission to – if you put them on and you can't right. do any more to say, all right, I, I took one more step. Because everybody's starting from a different place. We all have different levels of – depression or illness or i mean we're just all different so to expect that everybody's going to be able to do the same thing i'm looking for particularly with in myself and with the people that i'm coaching is like what's a what's one step beyond where you are Mm -hmm. you may not be able to get on the bike and ride for an hour you might be able to only get on your bike shorts but that's better than not getting those on and i love the idea of somebody in the fetal position napping in bike shorts yes they're very sexy maybe sucking a thumb you know (laughs) go full go full (laughs) go full peloton's offering a new series of courses actually that are really uh fetal position oriented (laughs) i would love that 
a bike you can ride on your side in bed. <laughs> you can have the best of both worlds. Yep. That, oh, that my would God. Be great. Uh, so uh, now talk about what's happening. Um, I believe you said neurologically or physically uh, with taking these these actions. You said that was the kind of the second uh, part of it. Well, I was talking about more of the 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 science of of behavior change, right? Which okay. we already kind of went into, right? I mean, there's been a lot of studies out there about how do people change, how do people build habits, you know? And we know that a big piece of it is deconstructing the thing into small steps. Here's what I think it sort of it goes on inside me and I think it goes on inside a lot of people. Let's say I'm sitting there on the couch and I'm like, "All right, I should I should go, uh, you know, today was going to be an hour long ride." And I, I internally go, how much energy do I have? And I, you know, I come up with one unit. And then I think about how much energy it takes to do an hour long ride. And I go 20 units and I go, all right, can't do it. Right. right? I think that happens so quickly, almost subconsciously, mm-hmm. but I think it's what's going on. I think especially for the addict brain, that's like, well, if I'm not going to the gym seven times a week for two hours a day, yep. why not just get fat? That's right. Yeah, yeah, all or nothing thinking is a big is another big one with that I have to work with you know a lot of people on and myself is you know how do you how do we how do we break out of that because the truth about doing anything consistently any sort of habit I think for 95% of people is there's nothing approaching perfection with it. Right. And if if you're if you're doing well and then all of a sudden you get sick for three or four days, like that's what throws a lot of people off. Like I'm exercising, I'm doing great, and mm-hmm. I got sick for three or four days. And, and then now it's three months later and mm-hmm. I haven't moved, right? It's, it, and so recognizing like you're, we're going to get off track inevitably. Question, you know, I look at like my whole thing is how quickly do I get back on now? And so I'm pretty consistent with exercise and meditation and all those things, but I don't think of it as like I'm on this straight line. I think of it as you can't really see this, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wavering a little bit, but my wavering isn't three months at a time. It's a couple days at a time. Mm-hmm. I'm off. I'm off for a couple of days. No big deal. But that also speaks to what happens in our head is you miss a couple of days and your brain goes, see, I knew you couldn't do it. <laughs> That's so right? fantastic. Like, you know, I knew, yes. you, who are you fooling? Yes. How many times have uh, you started exercising before and quit? Why yeah. did you think this time was going to be different? Yeah. That is such a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's why knowing that we're going to not be perfect, knowing that we're not going to succeed. And, you know, I always just say like, get back on track with as little drama as possible. Like just that brain, that voice in your brain, you're like, okay, thank you for the information. Like, you know, but if we expect that we're not going to be a hundred percent, then, you know, I, I, when I look at like doing something like meditating every day, you know, my goal is, um, I feel like I am succeeding really, really well if I'm doing 90%. But that's still 36 days a year I'll miss. That's three days a month. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and maybe we don't even set our, you know, if, you, if you're right now, you're at 10%, 50% is way better. You know, it's one of the things that I think is interesting about the new harm reduction model that we see 
around drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. which goes against the, the sort of what I was raised in and sort of an mm-hmm. abstinence only. But I think the problem is that the abstinence only thing – I do think abstinence is what a lot of us really need. But there's no room for being better in yes. that. You're either perfect or you suck. Right. And so most other things in life, we don't want to be that way about, you know, right. like exercise. You're not going to be perfect. I had a guest on, uh, Teresa Strasser, who was filled. Uh, she was a new mom, and she was just filled with anxiety and convinced that she was going to be a terrible mom. It kind mm. of been pounded into her head by her mother. And she said a book that, that really changed things for her, and, and I'm not sure exactly what the title of it was, but something along the lines of being a good enough yeah. mother. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's uh, that phrase, good enough parent, comes from one of the people who did a lot of studying on, uh, I think it was D.H. Winnicott, who studied a lot about our development as kids. And what he said was, yeah, you just need a, you need good enough parents, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, it's the same thing. We just need good enough. And I think it's a, always just a matter of like, like I said, how we're all starting from different places. What is a, what is a step forward? What is a small step forward for me? And the idea is if I can take that, then I might be able to build on it. Um, I feel like this naturally leads us into then talking about uh, self-compassion. Yeah. And the, the importance of that. Um, talk about that. Well, I think it's one of the things that I've come to realize – more recently, I think as it's become something that's talked about a lot more. And Mm -hmm. as I've had guests on the show that talk about it, I've really realized the importance of it. It's interesting in my early recovery journey, it was not really modeled that well for me. It was kind of like, you're, you know, you're, uh, you're a liar, a a cheat and a thief. Thief. Stop being an asshole. Get your shit together. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so, and that's very kind of the, the, the old school recovery that started in the thirties and forties. Yeah. Yeah. And I come from Columbus, Ohio and I got sober in the nineties and Columbus, Ohio is right down the road from Akron. And so there was a lot of that. So I didn't get it modeled very well. I, I think there were some really good things I got out of that time. So I'm not you know, but but yeah, I think self compassion is really really important, partially because a living in a mind that is not at war with itself is just a whole lot better experience. There are a few things we could do, I think, to improve the quality of our lives as much as learning to talk to ourselves more kindly. Yeah, because we're talking to ourselves all the time, and I think our culture <clears throat> it holds us back with the whole. You know, you've you, if you're not number one, keep trying harder. Yeah, you know what the fuck is the matter with being number six? Nothing. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that is one of the pernicious aspects of the self help industry that I don't like. Is everybody could be. Everybody can be amazing. Yeah. Everyone tap into your inner astronaut. Fuck yeah. off. Yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. It's and and that just not only does that lead to a great deal of inner misery. It it leads to us not even being able to enjoy any part of the wonderful things that are in every life. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that not, there are lots of people living lives that are really 
bad, like a mm-hmm. lot of difficulty. Mm-hmm. And even within there, those, there is beauty. There is, you know, it's it's there. It's harder to find. And and I'm not suggesting that that somebody who's you know being abused right now should forget about their abuse and only look for their beauty. That's not at all what I'm saying. Right. I'm just saying that there is a there is a there's always this balance for me between how do I want to change want to become better, want to strive in a healthy and good way, and also just go just right where I am. I'm sitting in Paul Gilmartin's house. Like, how great is this? You know, like it, and it's there, you know, I walked by beautiful flowers this morning. I just think there's, there's, so I always am trying to figure out that balance because I, by my nature, will be that strive it's got to be more it's got to be better it's got to be more it's not good enough yeah and i think when we're in survival mode it's really hard to appreciate the flowers to appreciate this or that we're just looking for the next thing that will cattle prod us into oblivion agreed agreed yep yep yeah i i think that you're you're absolutely right um that sometimes it's i mean there are days that for me it doesn't it doesn't doesn't it doesn't work yeah. You know, I'm like, well, that thing seemed beautiful yesterday, but that's just because I was being stupid. <laughs> <laughs> was what's the what's the point? You know, yeah. which is why I think a lot of times the the, the hurdle that keeps peof- people from seeking a different way of life, from asking for help, is from the outside. It looks lame and goody goody two shoes, and when you're filled with shame and feel like you're a piece of shit, the last thing you want to do is be around a bunch of people that you feel like are 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 goody goody two shoes yeah yep yeah i think that's a i mean there's a lot of a lot of identity gets tied up in our dysfunctional addicted selves yeah i mean that's a whole that's a whole other element of like i identify as this way you know i've i've looked at that in myself as i've as i've gotten you had Susan Cain on recently. Um, you know, I talk with Susan. I love her book. It, and the whole thing that got her going was like, why do we, why do some of us love sad music so much? Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I identified, but as I started thinking about it, I was like, I don't think I love it as much as I used to. Yeah. I still love it, but I don't think I do as much as I used to. And so I, I you know, there's a part, there's an inner part of me that resists that doesn't want to be happy. Mm-hmm. You know, because my identity is tied to being the outcast punk rocker, you know, at, you know, tough, you know, th- being just a normal, average, happy person. There's a part of me that has to let go of that identity. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think when we're in a certain space emotionally and mentally, there, there are things that just are on the same frequency that, that we are, whether it's a sad song or watching a documentary about, you know, something awful, it, it, there's an odd comfort to it. And I used to feel guilty for taking comfort in watching a really fucked up documentary. Um, but I don't anymore because I, I kind of view it as um, just feeling a, a kindred spirit in that moment. And, and just because something brings me comfort doesn't mean morally I approve of the horror that's happening in, in what I'm watching. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, I think the whole why we're drawn to what we're drawn to is is really interesting. And and in what in what cases is it a good idea to think about? Well, maybe that's not really great for me and my mind and my mental health. Mm-hmm. And in what cases it's just like okay, just let yourself be the way you are. Yeah. I just I don't think there is an easy. I think we all have to navigate those questions for ourselves. You know, there there were you know there was there was a whole swath of music when I got sober that just for me had to be off the table, like uh, Jim Carroll, uh, the Jim. You know, <laughs> all these people have died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a he was a he was a you know he was a junkie uh, poet out of New York who re- recreate you know created a couple of really great albums, but it was all about getting high and it was all about that was good you know and so that sort of stuff for me kind of i had to i had to let go of that it just wasn't good for me now i can listen to it now and appreciate it for what it is but not then i have i have a hard time like when i watch a movie and not that i'm looking for a saccharine ending because i i hate that as much as i hate a cynical ending but the cynical ending that's that's uh just feels uh, like um, I don't know uh, childish in its darkness and rejection yeah. of everything. Yeah, it's like I don't know. It just it really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, I, I have the same reaction as much to something that's overly saccharinely positive or negative. I yes. feel like I love. Um, in in the Susan Cain interview, right? Her book's called Bittersweet. Great. It's yeah. both, right? And you talk, you know, it's your awfulsome moments, right? Mm-hmm. It's both. It's, yeah. it's, that's to me the art that I'm drawn to that, that really shows both the beauty and the challenge mm-hmm. of being human. When it's both there, when I laugh and cry, or that's the art that resonates with me the most deeply. Yeah. I think it's why I love movies from the 70s because, you know, post Watergate, People did, did happy endings were so sixties and seventies <laughs> movies they tackled uh many of them tackled subjects for the first time in a gritty real way that wasn't glamorizing the grit um but gave us bittersweet endings, sometimes yeah. sad endings, but they were based in reality. Yeah. And yep. there was something Again, I think like the you know the vibration of a of a sad song, you know the truth when you feel it. Yeah, yep. And I think that's what we're looking for is a reflection of our own uh, personal truths. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I find myself drawn more to you know more drawn to art that there's um, a redemption in, mm-hmm. not a fake. Ad- redemption but you know for those of us who have recovered it is a it is a redemption story to some degree right they're beautiful stories it doesn't mean life is easy it doesn't mean that it's perfect but it's not hell yeah it's no longer hell yeah at least not every day yeah and and there are lots of moments of real beauty in there yeah going back to that but by this i mean you know not a not a saccharine beauty of a flower but the beauty of talking to another person and seeing in their eyes the first time when they see like i'm not alone i mean you talk about that all the time on the show but when you're with someone and you see that happen in them it's beautiful. you can see it physically yeah. you see yeah. it in their eyes yeah. i remember one time at one of my support groups this guy who used to not be able to make 
eye contact every time he would he would share he would look at the ceiling <laughs> and he had done some really deep inner work over the weekend and he was making eye contact with people and <laughs> yeah. i was like that fired me up yeah that really yeah. fired me up uh buddy thank you for for coming on uh anything you want to share before we uh, wrap up the, the name of your podcast is the one you feed yep. uh the website O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. And so, yeah, you can find the podcast there. You can find uh, various programs we run. All It's all there. And uh, describe the parable of the one you see. Yeah, it's a parable. I first heard it in recovery. I mean, I was probably three months sober sitting in some crappy church basement somewhere. And someone said, you know, there's two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One's a good wolf. Which represents things like kindness and bravery and love, and you know, there's a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And you know, naturally, you ask which one wins, and and the answer is the one you feed. So that's the I use that as the jumping off point for all the episodes. Buddy, thanks so much for coming on. Many, many thanks to Eric, and we'll put all this uh, stuff under the uh, show notes for uh, for this podcast. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online, you'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And judgment-free is definitely how I would describe uh, the sessions that I've had with my cerebral therapist. Her name is Megan. She is thoughtful. She is empathetic, and, uh, and she's knowledgeable. And she's been helping me clarify baby steps I can take to uh, help achieve the professional goals that I uh, am trying to set. Um, I'm a big fan. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving our listeners 15% off the first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code MENTAL. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast, and then use the code MENTAL to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. See site for details. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence filled out. Uh, I think this is our third survey of the of the. Uh, episode uh, from a guy who calls himself lost in the woods uh, about his sex addiction. He says, pornography is easier than meeting people. About uh, his anger issues, I'm too weak to get the respect I deserve. Oh man, that one is deep. Too weak to get the respect I deserve. 
And then just in general, he he writes, why can't I look people in the eyes? I just want love. Man, those are good, buddy. And I know that feeling of having difficulty uh, looking people in the eyes. I don't, I don't have that anymore, but I, when my life used to be so built on shame and secrets, which is why I created that survey, the Shame and Secrets survey, because I knew how important it was for me to let go of the secrets to be able to let go of the shame and let love in, as corny as that sounds. I really hope you can get to a point where you can find your people and start opening up. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Leilani, and uh, some of the things you tell yourself about yourself, that I will never truly succeed at anything, that I suck, I'm unworthy, I'm not good at life. I was supposed to be delivered to another galaxy instead. Uh, that I don't get, quote, it, unquote. I'm a failure. My life is pointless. I'm a burden and a lot reliability. <laughs> any, any comments that make the podcast better? better? Paul, you're incredible. I hope that's the voice in your head. Uh, sadly, it is not. The voice in my head is always a version of you made a mistake. Everybody's leaving as a result. <laughs> But I'm glad that I can catch that sometimes. And I hope you can too. I hope you begin to to develop a, a, a counter argument to that voice in your head because you, you deserve to think and feel positive things about yourself. It's new agey as that sounds. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey. And this was uh, filled out by... Uh, a woman, she calls herself on the forum, she calls herself Mental Fairy, and her struggles are uh, panic, sudden sense of worry, uh, night terrors, sleepwalking, um, insecurity, and fearful of touch. And what's helped you deal with them? Uh, the Metal Pod Forum, the people that swing by from time to time, the ones we know read but don't post, the ones that read and post with care, understanding, and compassion that can't be made up. It's genuine. It's not the nod and yes, dear, you get from your partner who quite doesn't get how you're feeling. Or the friend who thinks they know, but truly has absolutely no idea in the world and sadly have only one friend. So my people are limited. Uh, the forum has opened up a world of understanding. It's reached across a massive ocean to help people like me. I am so glad to hear you say that. And there is a, a, a listener and great guy named Manny Mo who runs the forum. And I pretty much stay out of it. Um, but I, I encourage you guys to, to go check it out. Tons of threads on a variety of issues and some really, really nice people in there. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. This is filled out by a, a guy who calls himself Measly Twerp. So you know this is going to be Bremen with confidence. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. Uh, says he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Never been sexually abused. He was raised with a really uh, emotionally abusive father. 
any positive experiences with the abusers. Many years later, I went with my father to his mother's funeral. My father never cried, always claimed to be free of emotion and more rational than most people. He sounds like a great guy. But it was a mask, and it wasn't enough to protect him from his emotions that day. His own father was a drunk and physically abusive. I wish I knew what he went through so that we could finally be honest with each other. Isn't that a shame? The two people who can be a part of the same cycle, can have a wall between them that that is so hard to surmount. Darkest thoughts. I'm afraid of becoming so bad that suicide seems like the best option. Considering how much it hurts now, the amount of pain terrifies me. Darkest secrets. I'm not ready to talk about it. I want a therapist really badly. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Having someone hold me. Maybe then we can think about sex. What, if anything, would you like? And, and, and I am always so touched when somebody writes that. Um, it, it, and in a way, it also kind of breaks my heart. Um, not because there's anything wrong with it, just because it's so beautifully, nakedly vulnerable. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to say to my former boss, I gave you everything I could. I worked stupidly hard for stupid hours because I believed in what we were doing. The least you can do is buy me a plane ticket home now that I'm struggling so much with my mental health. You owe me the safety of my own country. What, if anything, do you wish for? A plane ticket, a therapist, and a doctor. Have you shared these things with others? I have. Uh, to a couple of friends who I talk to online. I've been trying to write an email to my boss for weeks, but I cannot deal with the feeling that I've let him and my co-worker down. I know that I deserve better, but it's so hard and coasting is so easy. Oh my God, that's such a profound sentence. It's so hard and coasting is so easy. Isn't it? It's so fucking easy to do nothing. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm crying. Maybe later I'll feel better. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are worth something, even though it hurts to acknowledge. Wow, thank you for that. And I'm sorry that, that, that you're going through this pain and feeling hopeless and stuck. Um, but it's it's you know, it sounds like you're somebody who is has some consciousness around the fact that something has to change. And that's the beginning. And that, you know, I think therein lies hope. This is from the fear survey filled out by Jennifer. And she writes, I fear a pseudo-Christian jihad in the U.S. that will tear apart what we have and a potential civil war. I fear right-wing extremists going into people's homes and taking whatever they want, then gaslighting people by saying it's Antifa or similar non-existent organizations doing it. Well, Antifa does exist. Um, it's just lies are made up about when and where they they show up, you know. Um, and that's not me taking one side or the other, even though I identify as a, a, a as a liberal. Um, 
I probably shouldn't have even read that one. Was that that just did I make things worse uh, by reading that? But um, you know, I wanted to read that because it's it's the elephant in the room for people not only living in this country but living in Brazil and living in Russia and living in in other places where uh, it's. It's just, uh, it's easy to feel like, what's the point? You know, the the wave of wrong is so overpowering, you know. Where can I, where can I go? Because I can't even summon the energy to think about fighting it beyond voting. Um this is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and I'm just going to read uh, an excerpt from it. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself almost former mess. And um, to the question, never been the victim of sexual abuse, she writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And she says, I've always been uncomfortable around men, which likely stems from seeing dysfunctional relationships with men around me growing up. But I always and still do fear that something happened that my brain repressed. I did have an uncomfortable relationship with an uncle. There would be play, wrestling, and fighting, and often I could tell he had a boner and got very awkward. Sometimes he would apologize, other times he wouldn't mention it. He was 10 years older than me, but often felt more like an older brother than an uncle since I was raised by my grandparents. I mean, that is enough to, you know, be the thing that you are looking for. I mean, that's really... uh, that's crossing a fucking line. It, you know, he's 10 years older than you. It's not like he was, uh, you were kids and there was, some, you know, some type of consensual experimentation or whatever going on. He knew better. You know, ask yourself if the situation were reversed, would that be appropriate for you to do? And of course, you're going to say, fuck no, I would never do that. Well, give yourself the same. the same rights. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Just Want to Be Held. And she identifies as straight. Um, She's in her 30s, says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um... She's been emotionally abused. Not sure if she, she says, if she's been physically abused. She writes, my mom would have me sleep in her bed until I was a teenager to get out of having sex with my dad. He would still come upstairs every night and try to get her to have sex even though I was in the bed. They never did anything with me there, but it feels horrible to know I was used by my mother as a buffer. It feels even more horrible when I remember the sound of the second creepy, creaky step as my dad walked upstairs because I knew I had to pretend to be asleep and listen to him begging my mom for sex and touching her while she said no because I was in the bed. I'm not sure if this is abuse or not. <laughs> my, I'm, I mean, I'm not laughing at you. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing at how beyond clearly abuse this is. So fucking... You would be... If, if child services had been made aware of this, you would have been... Ref- removed from the home. Um, 
I'm not sure if this is abuse or not. All I know is that I'm 35 years old now and it still makes me feel like crawling out of my skin. My mom has since died and I'm left with an eating disorder and a weird relationship with my dad. He doesn't, rena- he doesn't know I remember all of this. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I hate when my dad hugs me or touches me at all. I would cry when I knew he was looking at me. I'm not sure if it's related to all those nights. When he was turned down, a huge fight would ensue, sometimes physical. I pretended to sleep through that too. Darkest thoughts. I'm ashamed to admit that I try to collect mothers. I'm drawn to warm and nurturing women. It becomes an obsession. I'm afraid to get older because less people will want to take care of me. Darkest secrets. I was house-sitting when I was 20. I was attacked at night, raped, beaten, and even objects were used. I had many injuries, including broken bones that should have been casted and gashes that should have been stitched. I never told anybody, pretending uh, instead that it's a dream. Oh, I'm so sorry that you went through that. Fuck. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm ashamed to to admit that all I fantasize about is being held by a nurturing mother. What, if anything, would you... Gracie. I mean, maybe Gracie is uh, offering herself as a nurturing mother. Gracie, by the way, did have a litter before uh, before I found her. I would love to see uh, some of her babies. Anyways, I'm getting sidetracked. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm not as happy and all and uh, together as I appear. I'm using my sense of humor to hide my hearing disorder and depression. I'm not real, or at least I don't think I have permission to be real, but I want so badly for you to see that and call me out on it, but nobody will. What, if anything, do you wish for? Aside from what I said above, I wish to have someone say that they will love me like their own, never leave me, and that I can call, I can call, fall apart in their presence and it won't change how they feel about me. Have you shared these things with others? Never. I'm afraid that all the cracks that I've glued together will completely burst and I will fall apart. I've worked hard to appear dot 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 normal question mark. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm crying now and my heart is racing. I feel crazy. I'm writing this after all these years. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I would like to meet you because I have yet to know anybody who does. Um, I think you will meet somebody if you keep looking for your people. As scary as that sounds. And I, I, I hope I don't sound like a, a broken record, but... Um, it's just human connection is so important. It's so important. And let's end with this one. This is a happy moment. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself, uh, the anxious wildflower. And, uh, she writes, I confess to my therapist how suicidal I was around my birthday. I have a strong aversion to getting older and I never want to celebrate. This is also complicated by my mother's death and her absence. Anyway, my, my therapist scheduled an additional appointment where we sat on the balcony and drank iced coffee together while talking about life. 
We talked about the future and meaningless things, but I also felt so cared for and valued. My birthday also landed on my scheduled therapy day, and I didn't know if I should go. But when I got there, she had a big smile on her face and gave me a nicely wrapped gift with a small notebook and pens and a lovely message written on a card. I still keep that card on my wall at home, and it reminds me of my progress in therapy and her caring and thoughtful nature. She really goes above and beyond, and I never feel like just a paying client to her, but someone she cares about as a human. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. And that is such a good feeling when we find people like that in the world. It is so good. Thank you for sharing that, and thank you all of you guys for that that fill out the surveys and thanks to my guest eric and uh just remember if you're out there and you're you're feeling stuck um you're not alone our people are out there we just got to find them and um thanks for listening Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.